You ready for some Exodus talk? Okay, we're going to talk Exodus, but we're not going to actually open up Exodus. That's how this thing goes at Freshwater, but we'll, I'll tell you why here in a second. So many of you don't um, know the legacy of your family, right? Do you know what happened generations before in your family? Some of you might, but a lot of us don't. And, and for those of us that do, some of our family history, if we go back through the generations, is a cautionary tale, right, about the way not to do things. But some of the things we look at are encouraging ones. Right? But, but knowing our history can't help but in, help inform us a little bit about who we are, how we got here. For example, I, I found out through my uncle, who's here today. Hey, Uncle Joe. <laughs> He's sitting in the back. That's so cool. I'm talking about some of the stuff that, that he taught me. He's our family historian. I didn't mean to point you out today, but I love he's back there because he's our family historian. Everything I know about my family came from him, right? And what, what, I, what I found out through him is that my great, 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 great grandpa was given land in Mount Vernon after fighting in the War of 1812. Is that right? That's right. And you know who lives on that land to this day? My Uncle Joe. Right, Michael Joe. So that's how we kind of ended up here. That's how, that's how the Patton family ended up in this area. And not only that, out of that land, our family donated Baptist Hill in Mount Vernon. Anybody ever heard of Baptist Hill? Yeah, they do a lot of church camps there. They do a lot of youth camps there. God has been at work at Baptist Hill for, since 1918. And my family donated that. I just found that out a few years ago when Uncle Joe told me. How cool is that? Right? There's a legacy there that I didn't even know about. I also found out from my uncle that my grandfather... And I didn't know, I, did, I had no idea of this growing up. My grandfather was the oldest living member of First Baptist Church in Mount, not, no, not member, deacon, right? Oldest deacon at Mount Vernon First Baptist Church. I had no idea. So coming from a guy who never really wanted to be a pastor, I even found out that there's pastors back, like I think all the way back to Scotland or something in my family, right? I didn't know about, right? So um, I, I've never really, I never really wanted to be a pastor. If you know my story, that was never my goal. And be honest, I don't really care about being a Baptist. I told you a few weeks ago, welcome to the Baptist. You're in a Baptist church right now. You didn't know that. Sorry if you didn't know, right? But you're in a Baptist church. And I love Baptist doctrine, right? But I don't really care that much about denominations. It doesn't matter that much to me. I care about doctrine. I care about what the Bible has to say, right? And so, but apparently we're a Baptist church, and I've had Baptist legacy in me for a really long time. It apparently helped inform who I became, and I didn't even know it. It's just a part of who my family is, and so here we are today. Church, whether you know the history of your immediate family or not, you are a part of a family. A family, that legacy that goes all the way back to the first people that ever lived, Adam and Eve. A family with a legacy that God has been shaping and molding and growing and calling into his presence, calling home for a very long time. You are a part of a legacy so much bigger, so much grander than you just being a Christian than you just being saved. Being a Christian is important. Being saved, it all comes down to whether we have salvation or not, but it's so much more than that. So knowing this, understanding the history, the legacy of our faith, where we came from and how that informs who we are is what our series on Exodus is really all about. Understanding where we came from, understanding that in Christ you are a part of not just a part of the world, not just a part of the kingdom of man, but you are a part of the kingdom of God. And that's what this series is really about, talking about how God is delivering his people from the kingdom of man, from the kingdom of sin, into the kingdom of God, into the family of God and everything that that means. That's what we're talking about in this series. So last week, if you were here, you heard us talk about that. We, we, what we did is we made it clear is that you can't fully understand what's happening in Exodus, what they're talking about in Exodus, without understanding the promises or the word, the covenants that came before in Genesis. 
They inform everything. It constantly talks about God's steadfast love and his faithfulness to them. When they're talking about his steadfast love and faithfulness, often they're pointing back to the covenants that came in Genesis. The truth is that the whole foundation of Exodus, but more importantly, the whole foundation of our faith is built on the promises, the covenants found in Genesis and the actions of God in Exodus. Do you hear that? Like we see... God's promises and actions in both books. But really, the whole foundation of our faith is built on the promises of God in Genesis and the actions of God in Exodus, and they inform each other. And so, last week, we looked at the first three promises, the first three covenants in the book of Genesis, the first ones that God ever made. Promises that really laid out God's plan, his will, his, his, his rescue mission that, that would lead to the redemption of the entire world for everyone who would believe in Christ. Though there's the three promises that laid out in Genesis, the first three, that, that lay out the foundation for all of that. And we don't have time to recap those today. So if you didn't hear those, I really strongly encourage you to go back to the website or to our YouTube channel and listen to those again. Because I'm not exaggerating, as I said if, uh, lately in the last few weeks, I'm t- I tend to exaggeration, right? But this is not an exaggeration. They are the bedrock foundation of our entire faith. Those promises. They inform our entire faith. Right, so go back and listen to them. This week we're going to move on to the Abrahamic covenants. Or the covenants that God made with a man named Abraham and his family. And so, if you missed it last week, I want to make sure we're on the same page. What we said, a covenant is simply an oath an oath-born, oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. An oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. Right? And so, it's not a contract. And a contract is just an agreement to fulfill your side of things, right? And it's, it's similar to a contract, but it's not that, because it's not about just the requirements, it's about the relationship. A covenant is an oath-bound relationship. Yes, where most of the time, parties on each side have responsibilities that they're supposed to live up to, but this is not just about the responsibilities, this is about relationship. And then God, when he makes a covenant, we call that a divine covenant or a God-centered covenant. And what what divine covenants are, are how God establishes his relationship or God establishes our relationship in regards to him. Right? How God establishes our relationship in regards to him. Listen, God's the creator, right? This was all his idea. We are here because of him. He designed it to work in a certain way. So God gets to determine what our relationship to him looks like. We don't get to decide how God operates. God decides how we operate because this was all his idea. And so that's what a divine covenant is. God telling us how our relationship will look because he is God and we are not. And so within that that idea of covenants, we introduced, we just introduced the three main themes of Exodus. And I'm going to give them to you again. Because even though we're not going to technically get into the book of Exodus today, you're going to see these themes even woven through the promises and how they're going to inform everything that came in Exodus. So here's the, here's the three main themes of Exodus. We're going to talk about these again and again. One is God's covenant faithfulness. Again, that comes up over and over in Exodus. That's why we're going through the covenants right now, so that we make sure we understand them, that God is faithful to the things he promises to do. The second one is God's deliverance. God's deliverance. More importantly, more specifically, God's deliverance through sacrifice. And we saw last week, we'll see this week, we'll see in Exodus how God's deliverance comes through sacrifice. And then the third main theme of Exodus is God's presence. That's really where this thing is going. What was lost with Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve in God's presence, this is God's rescue plan to restore his presence back into our lives. So we're going to see God's presence. Well, this week we're going to continue to dive into the covenants and see how God is faithful, see the, the covenants that God is faithful to in Exodus. And we're going to see the first real hints of how God plans to deliver his people 
and we'll begin to see God's plan to restore his presence among them. That's where this whole thing is going. So, like I said before, next week, we will actually read verses in the book of Exodus. It'll be amazing, right? We're actually going to get into Exodus in the third week. But before we do, let's dive into this guy named Abraham. And so, you're going to see, we're going to start in Genesis 12, and it refers to Abraham as Abram. God changes Abraham's name to Abraham, from Abram to Abraham in Genesis 17, but we're not going to read that today. So, I'm going to use Abram and Abraham interchangeably today. Same guy. The New Testament does it the same way. The New Testament almost always just calls him Abraham because that's where his name landed. Same thing with Abraham's wife. Her name's Sarah, but Sarai is what her name was before God changed her name too. So Sarai, Sarah are going to be used interchangeably. All right? So I just don't want you to be confused. So let's dive into this guy named Abraham and how through him God changed the entire world. Like he changed the entire world through Abraham. So let's start with Abraham's background. And this is going to be pretty easy. We don't know much at all. We we know very little about his background. What we do know is that Abraham came from the line of Shem, who was one of Noah's sons, and that his family, like his father's family, his legacy came from the land of Ur. They call him Ur of the Chaldeans. And so, as far as we know, Ur was probably around Baghdad and Iraq. So, at some point, Abraham's father, Terah, decided to move the family from Ur to Canaan. Does anybody know what Canaan eventually becomes? Israel, right? The land of Israel, where the Jews are, right? They, they established them in the land of Canaan that became Israel. And so, so Abraham's father decides to move the family there, but they never made it there. They get to this place called Haran. And they think Haran was in the land of probably Turkey, modern-day Turkey, probably. And from archaeological digs, they think it was probably a major center for trade. So we don't really know what happened, but it looks like Abraham's father took the family, we're moving them towards Canaan, got to... Haran or Haran, and when they got there, there was opportunity for the family, so they just stayed. We, we think that's what happened. We don't really know, but all, what we do know is they stayed in Haran, and they never made it to Canaan, and that's almost all we know. Other than that, Joshua 24, in the book of Joshua, in chapter 24, it says that Abraham's family didn't worship the God of the Bible, that they worshiped false gods, that they worshiped other gods. Right, And so as we lay out the story of Abraham in a second and what God does through Abraham, listen, it's not because Abraham was this righteous and blameless guy. And the story of Noah, Noah is described like that, but Abraham, at least to start off, is not described like that. Because you know why? Because it, it shows us very clearly that this is not a story in the end about, God, about Abraham's faithfulness. This is a story about God's faithfulness. So often we make it all about Abraham, and hey, we should. A lot happened through Abraham. We're going to see his faith in a second, but Abraham fails throughout this process. This is not about Abraham's faithfulness, blamelessness, or righteousness. This is about God's righteousness and faithfulness. All right, so with that background, let's go ahead and dive in to our real point today, God's covenant with Abraham and his family. Read with me in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 1 through 7. Genesis Verse 1 through 7. Genesis 12, 1 through 7. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, 
and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So even though it's a mystery to why God chose Abraham, what, what we get is God chose Abraham because God chose Abraham. God chose Abraham because of his faithfulness. Right, we actually see in this passage too that do you see how old Abraham is when this story starts? 75. He's already an old guy. He's 75 years old. And this is so not about Abraham that we don't really learn. About, he's 75 years old. We don't really know anything about his history except that he moved to this land called Haran. That's all we really know. It, again, it shows that this is not Abraham's story and this is not your story. This is God's story. This is about God's faithfulness. So God chooses Abraham simply because he chose Abraham because in his goodness, he knew it was the right thing. And he comes to him and he says, hey, if you leave... If in faith you leave basically everything you've ever known, if you leave this land, if you leave your family and follow me to a land that I'm going to show you, a land that I'm promising to give to your offspring, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless those that bless you. And I'm going to make your name great. And then the big promise. And through you, I'm going to bless every nation on earth. Other places, and it says in Genesis, either every nation or every family on earth. So what does Abraham do? He believes God and he follows him in faith. And this is pretty crazy for a couple of reasons. One, again, as far as we can tell, Abraham didn't worship the God of the Bible. Right? He worshiped other gods. So God may, must have made a pretty big impression on him, right? Has God ever come to you with something and just you've just felt God's presence, you've just been overwhelmed? Like if you have an experience like that with God, it can really change the trajectory of your life. And so God comes to Abraham and overwhelms him with this in some way. God does what he does. And so it's pretty crazy that he would leave and didn't even worship the God of the Bible before this. But the second crazy thing is God is promising to make a great nation from the line of Abraham. A nation that will inherit the land of Canaan that will become Israel. Now, if you know the story, what's the problem with that? What's the problem with this promise? Abraham and his wife, we're guessing Sarah's about his age, right? Abraham is 75 years old, and they've never had kids. And Sarai, Sarah, his wife, is barren. Like they can't have kids, and they're already old. And so then God, when they're already old, God comes to them and says, hey, I'm going to do all this. And how this is going to happen is through them having a kid, through them having a son, yet they're old, and Sarah is barren. And so not only is he going and following a God that he's never known before, he's got to believe that as they are old people, God is going to give them a child, a child that's going to have other children and spread into this huge people group that will turn into a great nation. That's a big ask from God. But he follows him. He follows him. It's a, it's a big deal. Now, before we dive deeper into these promises, because God goes deeper into this, more specific, specific how this is going to play out in Genesis 15, there's one promise in this that I want to sit on for a second. I already said it was big. God says that he's going to bless every family, every nation on earth through him. Now, that, that promise, that part of the promise is not going to repeat in Genesis 15, but it's repeated over and over in the book of Genesis. It's repeated over and over again throughout all the Old Testament that God is going to bless every nation, every family on earth through Abraham and his line. But more importantly for us today, 
It's also talked about in the New Testament where God tells exactly what this part of the promise meant. Right? Because I'm about to make a bold claim about what this promise meant all the way back at the beginning in Genesis 15, what God was intending. But luckily, it's not a guess for me. Uh, I'm not guessing. Galatians tells us exactly what is happening in this moment. Jason, can we get Galatians 3.8 up? It says this. This is the New Testament. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, the non-Jews by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations be blessed. So in this moment, Scripture is telling us is that God was preaching the gospel to Abraham. Right? Christ is not going to come around for 2,000 more years. But in this moment, it's saying that Abraham, the Holy Spirit is coming to Abraham and preaching the gospel to him. That's crazy. Abraham had no concept of what the gospel was going to be. Galatians 3.16 goes on to say this. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. God is telling us here in this moment that he's preaching the gospel, of not just the gospel in general, but the gospel of Jesus Christ to Abraham. And so when Abraham heard it, of course it was a mystery to him. It would have been a complete mystery to him. Like, how is God going to bless every nation, every family on earth through me? But Jesus came through the line of Abraham, and Jesus coming through the line of Abraham is how God was going to answer this promise. As I told you last week, all through Scripture, it starts right after Adam and Eve's sin in the fall happens, but right at the beginning in Genesis 3, there's this promise of a son, a son that is going to come and redeem us, a son that's going to come and undo the curse. Again, it comes down to all about a son, and now it's a son within the line of Abraham, a son that is going to build a huge people group, and a son that will come to redeem us all. This is what God is preaching to Abraham in this moment. He doesn't know it, but God is doing incredible things much bigger than Abraham can even imagine. He's telling him that redemption to the world is going to come through your family line. Again, that's a big promise. Abraham's son is really the beginning of everything that God's going to do through the Jewish people and then in the New Testament through all people in Christ. Now, God's not done with this promise. As I said, he's going to further refine it. He's going to give us more detail about what this promise means. Turn to Genesis 15. Flip over to Genesis 15. And mark this chapter. This is a very important chapter for understanding what God has done in the Old Testament, how it informs what he's doing in the New Testament. He's doing among us. Let's start with, uh, we'll start in verse 1. Let's read through verse 6. Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So right, it's not his son that's going to be the heir, it's just somebody in his household. Verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward heaven. And number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it, he counted it to him as righteousness. So I want you to think about this for a second. Like, put yourself in the shoes just for a second. Abraham really left everything he's ever known. Right? The only family member, other than his wife, it, it looks like the only family member he actually took was his nephew Lot. 
right? Left his land, left everything he didn't know, walked out just trusting in the promises of God to a place that he's never been. And every promise that God had made after this point was based off of him and Sarah having a baby. And they hadn't had the baby yet. In fact, I don't, I'm not sure exactly how much time has passed at this point, but in Genesis 17, we're not going to read Genesis 17 today. We almost did, but we didn't have time. But in Genesis 17, Abraham asks God about this again, and it's been 25 years. He's now 99, old, and he still doesn't have a child yet. Right? So that, can you imagine that big of a promise? You're already old. Your wife is barren. God promises you all of this is going to come through your own child, and it's years and years and years later and that promise still hasn't been fulfilled. Listen, church, God works through patience, doesn't he? And I don't think any, any human is naturally all that patient, but particularly in our culture where we get everything right now. I mean, right, we can know anything, basically anything in the world we can know right now, and we've gotten used to that. But this is years and years, decades potentially at this point, and it will be decades by the time he finally, his son Isaac finally comes, and he's having to wait in a land that he doesn't know. And so we ask God, like, basically, what's going on? Abraham had doubts. He is doubting God in this moment. What were you, I, I mentioned this before, but here, here's what I love about some of the great people in the Bible. Abraham and his wife are far from perfect. They make mistake after mistake after mistake through this. They do a lot of really incredible things for God, too. They, they're faithful, right? But faithfulness doesn't mean perfection, they mess things up. And then in this moment, we see that like most of us, at times, Abraham had doubts. He had doubts that God was going to do what he said he would do. And what was God's response to Abraham? Did he scold him? Did he come down on him? Right, because a lot of that times when we sin or we mess up or we have doubts, we feel like God's pressing us down saying, hey, why, wouldn't you, why aren't you better? Why don't you have more faith? Why don't you do this better? No, God didn't do any of these things, but he, he takes them outside. I think this is a beautiful moment. I don't know exactly how this happened, right? But God's like, wait, you're doubting Abraham. I get it. Here, come with me. Come outside. And has him look up at one of the most beautiful things that God ever created, right? The night sky. Looks up at the beauty of the night sky. I think God, God was trying to reflect to him the beauty that he has waiting for him too, right? He says, him, look up at the night sky and says, look, can you count all these stars? And I think God's saying, I know you can't count them all. There's too many of them. This is what your family is going to look like. Trust me. As the stars in the sky, so would your family be. This is that Abraham in that moment had faith. His faith was restored, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And that's a really important line. Because a lot of us read the Old Testament, and we think it's all about the laws and all about the rules, and that's all that God cared about. And that's not true. Man, the law is important. The law in the Old Testament was extremely important. But our faith has always been and will always be about faith. That's why we call it our faith having faith that God will do what he says he's going to do. And sometimes God answers prayers immediately. Like honestly, like with Corey. I mean, three days later, I don't have, days later, bam, a meeting at John B. Hughes. Crying and praying. Amazing. But some of you know God sometimes doesn't answer prayers for years or decades. There's an old English pastor named George Mueller. Read his autobiography. It's so good. It'll encourage you. It'll encourage you, but there's a story about how he prayed for five men his entire life, five of his friends who weren't believers. Three of them got saved during his lifetime. One of them got saved on his deathbed, and one of them got saved a decade or so after he had passed away. But the inspiration of George Mueller's life and his prayers led to him being saved. 
God even does the work and answers the prayer sometimes after we're gone, which is what's going to happen with the story of Abraham in a lot of ways. God is faithful. It's okay that sometimes you have doubts. It's, it's okay that sometimes you're like, why isn't God doing this? But we can look to stories like Abraham and we can hold on. God does not see time as we see time. He doesn't move the way that we want him to move because he knows what's best and he knew what was best for Abraham. But in this moment, even though Abraham had doubts, he didn't come down on him and scold him. He said, look up at the beauty. I have beauty waiting for you too. Look at the stars in the sky. That's what your family's going to be. And when Abraham had faith, he counted it to Abraham as if he was righteous in that moment. It's beautiful. God loves our faithfulness to him. Our faithfulness to him. So, Abraham in this moment has faith. His faith is restored in God's plan. He's not having doubts again. And so in this moment, since he had faith, since God showed him this beautiful thing, Abraham's probably never going to have doubts again, right? It's probably all over with. I mean, when God does something miraculous for us and he answers prayer, right, we never doubt again, we never struggle again, right? No, Abraham's just like the rest of us. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. This is about human nature. We don't change. Four, five thousand years ago, we're the same people. Verse 7. Verse, chapter 15. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, but Abraham said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? You see how quickly that turned? Counted to him as righteousness. And he says, but I, I'm going to give you not just a kid, but a land too. Well, how am I going to know that's going to happen? Have you ever treated God that way, right? Look at the promises of God. How, how, how shall I know that I'm going to possess it? Verse 9, he said to him, God said to him, bring me a heifer three years old. Now, that's a weird response to that, right? Keep going. Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against each other, meaning he laid them in rows, one half on each side. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Adam, or Abram, drove them away. So Abraham seems to come around on God giving him a son. Right? He actually believes in faith. His count is righteous. And then immediately has doubts about God giving his descendants the land for them to dwell in, the land that he's prom he promised them from the very beginning. So in this moment, as I kind of mentioned in there, God does something pretty bold. He tells, he tells Abraham to go gather some animals, cut them in half, and lay each half in a row on each side. Like it's like a, it's like a row like this against each other. Now, that's weird, Right? Sometimes when things like this in Scripture happen, right, especially if you're newer to the Bible and you haven't been able to work through some of these weird things, it's okay that we read that and we're like, what? Like, it's weird. But there's a purpose, and that's why the context of Scripture, the context of the ancient world um, is so important in times like these. In the ancient world, this was how people would make the most serious kind of covenant. And what it represented is when they cut the animals in half and they laid each half on each side, what they would do is make a row and then the parties would pass through the row of the animals. And it was to seal the most serious kind of covenant, right? So what the animals represented is as we pass through these animals, if I don't, if I don't keep my side of the covenant, what happened to these animals, let that happen to me. It's, it's a covenant based on you forfeit your life if you don't keep your side of the covenant. And what would usually happen, when we look at ancient texts, what would usually happen is the greater party would pass through second. The lesser party in the relationship, so if it was like a king and, and a, a vassal, the vassal would pass through first, showing his faithfulness to the vassal, and then the king would pass through. That's, that's how this normally worked in the ancient world. And so he tells Abraham to lay them out like this. 
So after laying down the animals, before this covenant is sealed by both parties walking through, because that's how it worked, God makes a crazy prediction, and that leads into this crazy promise. Look at this crazy prediction in verse 12 before they actually pass through these animals. Chapter 15, verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So Abraham gets the peace of knowing that he's going to die at an old age. He's going to die in peace, so that's great. But besides that, I want you to think about how amazing this is. God causes a deep sleep to come on upon Abraham, on Abram, and then he has a vision. And he tells him, Abraham, your, your people are not going to gain this land for a long time. In fact, they're going to be servants in a land for 400 years where they're going to be afflicted. But after those 400 years, I'm going to come to those people, and I'm going to deliver them from that affliction. And not only am I going to deliver them, but I'm gonna, they're going to leave, when they leave, I'm going to bring judgment on the land that, and the people that did this to them, and they're going to leave with great possessions. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Now, I know some of us in this room are new to this Bible thing, and I'm so glad that you get to hear this for the first time, but if you're familiar with the story of the Exodus, this is exactly how this thing is going to play out. This is probably about 600 years before the Exodus is actually going to happen, and God predicts exactly what's going to happen, right? And this is pretty miraculous for two reasons, and here's a, here's a big one. I don't think it's one that we think about very often. One, this shows God's purpose and plans for the Jews in Egypt. They didn't just end up there. It wasn't just a mistake that they ended up there. Egypt is the most powerful force on the planet in the time of the Exodus. And so as Abraham's people, as his family, as when he does have his son, as they start to grow, as they start to multiply, as they become a bigger family, they would have had no way to really protect themselves from the kingdoms and the nations and the people around them. They didn't have a land yet. So God ends up bringing them to Egypt where, the, where Abraham's family can grow like crazy. And I'm telling you, they come in with what? If I remember right, about 40 people, and they come out with millions of people. And Denver and I did the math. It works, right? That seems like a lot. How could they be millions of people that came in with just, just 40 or so? Like the math works. And so God brings them to Egypt. It's kind of protecting them under the greatest force in the planet at the time. And even though they were afflicted, they turn into this huge people group, and God answers this prayer. Listen, God sometimes does things that we don't understand, but even in our suffering, God has a plan. And the whole time of the Israelites in Egypt wasn't suffering, but in the second half or later half, they ended up becoming slaves, right? We're going to talk about that. They were afflicted. But even in their slavery, even their affliction, God was protecting them so he could bring them out, deliver them, show his glory to the entire world, and establish his covenant people. Even in the suffering, God has a plan. Even in the suffering, God can and be doing not only amazing things, but beautiful things. God is creating this huge people group. The second thing that's really miraculous in this promise is the thing that God does to seal this promise, this covenant. This covenant of a son, of a people, of a land where they will dwell with his presence with them. A covenant of future blessing to every nation on earth. Here's what God does to seal this covenant. He seals this covenant with his own life. Now, how does that make any sense? 
Pull Genesis 15 back up and read in verse 17. Genesis 15, verse 17, and we'll finish the chapter. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces, the pieces of the animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the greater river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perzites, the Rephim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now again, that's one of those weird things if you just read it, like a flaming, or a smoking pot and a flaming torch pass through the animal pieces. Again, that's weird, right, if you don't know the context. But if you read through the rest of Genesis, particularly in the book of Exodus and on through the Old Testament, often in Scripture, God's presence is represented by smoke and fire. Right when he's leading the Israelites, we'll see in Exodus, he leads them by a pillar of smoke during the day and a pillar of fire at night. What represented God's presence on Mount Sinai when they're at the mountain and Moses is going up on the mountain? What represents God's presence on the mountain? Smoke and fire. So we see all the time through the Old Testament, smoke and fire represents the presence of God. It plays out all through Exodus. So in this moment, God is sealing the covenant with Abraham. And so the Hebrew word, because this was written in Hebrew originally, right? The Hebrew word for the word covenant here literally means to cut a covenant. And that's really relevant. That's really important to what we're seeing here. Remember, Abraham had laid all these, ground, these animals on the ground to seal the covenant. And both parties usually pass through with the, the greater party passing through first. But you notice that Abraham didn't pass through? Only the greater party, only God passed through here. So in this moment, as Abraham sleeps, God is passing through, represented by the, the smoke and the flame. Do you see what happened there? Do you remember what this covenant seals? God just sealed this covenant with his own life. Now, that's a big deal that God would do that because this is how God answers Abraham's doubts. Once again, he doesn't come down on him. He seals this covenant with his own life by passing through the pieces. And that's okay because God's not going to break his covenant. God can't break his covenant because he's holy. Listen, God can do anything, but he's holy and he's righteous. He will not break his covenant. But Abraham didn't pass through. That's how this is supposed to work. So in this moment, God is saying, not only will I keep my side of the covenant, but I will take the responsibility of guaranteeing your side, Abraham's side of the covenant. He's guaranteeing our side. God is saying, I'm going to keep my side and I'm going to keep your side. And in this moment, he's saying, and if I don't do that, then what, let what happened to these animals happen to me. And so we see God once again reiterate this covenant in Genesis 17 to Abraham and his descendants when he says that our side of this covenant, we do have a side of this covenant, right? That God just passes through, but we have a side. Our side is to worship God and God alone, to have no other gods. Do the Israelites keep that promise? In our own lives, do we keep that promise to never have any other idols, any other gods besides God? No. The whole story of the Old Testament is that we break our covenants, that we never stay true to them. But God went through this, and he's saying, I'm going to take responsibility for your side of the covenant with my own life if, this is, if you fail at this, knowing that we would. That's weird, right? Because God can't die. He's God. He can't die. Well, we said a major theme of the book of Exodus and really the whole Bible is deliverance through sacrifice. Animals have been sacrificed to seal this covenant. We're going to see animals sacrificed in the law that's going to come to us in Exodus. But in the end, the story through history, throughout the Bible, is we never keep our side of the covenant. We will fail eventually. So God is saying, I'm going to do the unthinkable. I'm going to die. I'm going to sacrifice myself to pay the penalty of this failure. 
in the time of Abraham, how could he have possibly known what this meant? How could that have possibly made any sense? But it makes sense to us, doesn't it? Jesus would become the way that eventually every family on earth would be blessed. Jesus would become the way that every nation on earth would be blessed by, by being the once and for all sacrifice to pay for this penalty, to pay the penalty, faithfully giving his life because we failed to stay faithful to God, but God never, never fails to stay faithful to us. God himself, the God-man, God himself dying on the cross so that we might find redemption, so that we might be redeemed, so that we might be forgiven, so that God's presence could finally be in us and with us, which is the whole point, to be with God. That's everything that God is doing. Even the land, even the land is a representation of God coming back to be among his people. All of this is pointing to this, this time when God would redeem us, how he would redeem us, and what he was going to do. So that God may spare the lives of his beloved for not keeping their side of the covenant. This isn't a story about Abraham's faithfulness, church. This is a story about God's faithfulness to us, even at the cost of his own son's life. Because if you know the rest of the story with Abraham and his son, Abraham does have a son. His name was Isaac. And when he grew up to be a boy, God tests Abraham. And you know how he tests him? Do you remember? He says, I want you to sacrifice your own son for me. And when the moment comes and Abraham's going to sacrifice Isaac, God stops him. He says, no, Abraham, I have another sacrifice. Look, there's a sacrifice of a ram right there. I've provided the sacrifice for you. You don't need to sacrifice your own son because God was not going to ask that of Abraham. But even that moment was foreshadowing a day when God would not hold back his own son. He would not ask Abraham to do it, but he did it himself so that we might be redeemed, so that we might be saved, giving his own son, the God-man on the cross, so that our redemption might be possible, so that we might be saved, so that by that sacrifice we might be made whole. This is the story of God's faithfulness all through Scripture. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, God has been whispering to us in the Old Testament about how he's going to restore us back to what we had in the garden. That's what this is. It's a redemption. It's a restoration it's a restoration story, restoring back what was in the garden with Adam and Eve before the fall. The promises in, Gen in Genesis begin to show us how God is going to accomplish that. But the story in Exodus is where this all truly begins. In Exodus, we see God establishing not just his covenant, but a covenant people who he will be faithful to until the very end. No matter what happens, no matter what they do, he's going to be faithful to his people to the very end. It's a covenant people that will be delivered through sacrifice into a land that God chose for them, a land where God will dwell with them in the temple so that his presence might be among his people again. But also a people, the Israelite people, foreshadowing a day when God would truly deliver his people by fully restoring all things. When he gives us a land, church, when he gives us a land where we will dwell with him, among him, we will bask in the light of his glory and will finally understand what true redemption looks like. All of this is pointing to that day. We are still caught up in this story right now. Genesis, it introduces us, introduces it to us. In Exodus, we start seeing God's covenant people established and God taking action to establish what we would all become. But everything is answered in Jesus Christ for us now and will be answered in Jesus Christ when he comes and restores all things and we are truly brought from the kingdom of man into the kingdom of God. This is what we are looking at through the book of Exodus. 
It's not just this awesome, epic story about Moses and God and all the things that happened. And it is those things. It is God showing us that I have been faithful. I will always be faithful. And through eternity, I'm going to continue to be faithful to my people because I love you and I will never break my promises. I will never break my covenants and I will never abandon you. If you're in here today and God feels far off, he is not far off. Sin or the world or apathy or struggle or suffering or pain or hurt or whatever else is getting in the way, but God loves you and he's for you and he's been proving it for four, five thousand years through the story of the Bible that he is faithful, that he loves you, that he's, he's in your corner, so turn to him. If, if this is all new to you, did you, God has done all of this so that you might be saved. Place your trust in Jesus Christ that he came to redeem you on that cross to pay the penalty of your sin that you've broken again and again and again so that you might be redeemed. And then for the rest of us in this room, that, that, the, the craziness of this world is trying to overwhelm us. Be reminded of how good God is and start trying to, stop trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and stop focusing on all, all the negative and all the hurt right? and focus on the Lord and King that is so faithful to you. He wants you to know him, all of this, so that his presence might be restored, his, the power of the Holy Spirit might be in you. Your God is with you. Your God is for you. Come back next week as we actually start the book of Exodus and we see God take action to build a people that he'll always be faithful to. Let's pray. Oh God, how can these things be true? How can you be that faithful to us? God, I don't know how the rest of the people in this room feel, but how often do I just feel not good enough? Who am I that you're going to forgive me again? Who am I to stand up here and preach this word? Who am I that you would love me like that? But God, I, I'm so thankful for the promises that we see in Genesis and the story we see at Exodus to remind me when I forget that it is not about me always being faithful. It is about you always being faithful. God, I pray that you'd be with everyone in this room. That, this, that, that these, these words would not just be words on a page, but they would sink deeply into us and we would worship. We would worship you for who you are, for what you've done, and for what you're promising to do. God, whether sin or apathy, or suffering, or depression, or whatever else is getting in the way. God, I pray that you would begin to burn it away with your refining fire, and that your holiness and goodness and glory would overwhelm us, and that you would teach us to trust. Because as it says in your word, God, so many of us in the room, we have faith, but we need more faith. God, as we stand and we worship, I pray you'd be with us, that you draw us into your presence, and that you would change us. Change us to be like your son who you willingly sacrificed on that cross so that we could be redeemed. And help us to be not only for our own sake, but help us to be lights in this world, to take that, the truth of the gospel of this story out into the world, to see other people saved, to see other people encouraged, to see other people grow. God, we are not enough for this alone, but in you we are fully capable so God, I pray you'd lead us to wherever you'd have us go. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.